Hello and welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Mark Hopwood. With us today is Kasim Kassam, professor of philosophy at Warwick University, and he's here to talk with us about transcendental arguments. Kasim Kassam, welcome. Thank you. One topic that you've been especially interested in recently, it seems, is what philosophers call how possible questions. What would be an example of a how possible question? Uh, well, there are, there are many questions of that form. In epistemology, the canonical how possible question is, how is knowledge possible? That's a very general how possible question, but then there are more specific variants on that question. So, for example, you might ask, how is knowledge of the external world possible? Or how is self-knowledge possible? Or how is knowledge of other minds possible? So these are how possible questions in the context of epistemology. But there are many other how possible questions. So, for example, you might ask, how is uh, freedom possible? How is it possible for any of our actions to be free? The idea, I think, with these questions is that philosophers ask them because they think that there's something puzzling about the phenomenon in question. And these how possible questions give expression to a certain kind of puzzlement. So in the freedom case, for example, you might think something along the following lines. So we human beings are part of the natural world. We're just biological organisms. Presumably, our thoughts and actions and desires and so on are caused, like other natural phenomena. And if that's the case, how can anything that we do count as free? That's a classic sort of how possible question. In epistemology, there are particular roots to the how possible questions that I listed earlier, which I'm interested in. So the general project is trying to understand what it is that leads philosophers to ask questions of that form, about knowledge or about anything else. And then once we understand why philosophers ask questions of that form, to try and figure out how to answer them. These are very general how possible questions then. They aren't like specific, like, wow, I just saw a car go 300 miles an hour, and how is it possible for it to go that fast? These are you know, much more fundamental questions, like how is it even possible to know anything in the first place? How is it even possible yes. that anything I do is a matter of my own choice? Exactly, yeah, yeah. So maybe to get to the, the knowledge question, mm-hmm. how is knowledge possible? You, you know, you might find it kind of hard to imagine a situation in which you would ask that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems, you know, comparatively easier to imagine a situation in which you would ask a very narrow how possible question about knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, if, uh, you know, Sherlock Holmes uh, walks in and immediately says, oh, you're, you're from New Jersey. And uh, I say, how did you know that? I never told you that. So it mm-hmm. seems like we ask mm-hmm. these specific, you know, how did someone know such and such questions all the time, but... How is it that someone would come to find mm-hmm. the very idea of knowledge in the first mm-hmm. place mysterious? Mm-hmm. Well, I like the Sherlock Holmes example, actually. Um, it illustrates a point about how possible questions, which arises even in the very general case. So in your example, if Sherlock Holmes says, oh, so if you're from New Jersey, and you, you say, well, how is it possible for him to know that? I take it that the force of asking the question in that form is you don't really see how he could have known it. There's, no, there's on the face of it, no way in which he could have known it. But he does know it. So that's why you ask, well, how is it possible for him to know? So what you have there is an apparent obstacle to Sherlock Holmes knowing where you're from, but he somehow managed to overcome that obstacle. And when you ask, how could he possibly have known, what you're really asking is, given all the factors which make it look impossible for him to have known such a thing, how was it nevertheless possible? So there's a general kind of form there of the question. A how possible question is asked relative to a particular factor that makes the thing in question look impossible. And then you ask, given the things that make it look impossible, how is it nevertheless possible? 
So when one gets around to the very general how possible questions that get asked by philosophers, questions of the form how is knowledge possible, take how is knowledge of the external world possible, of course the thing that really gives rise to that question is scepticism. So traditionally sceptics produce considerations which are supposed to show that we couldn't possibly know uh, what the world around us is like. So there are traditional sceptical arguments which many people will be familiar with. So, for example, some sceptics say, for you to know that you're sitting there holding that microphone in your hand, you would need to know that you're not dreaming. You would need to know that you're not being deceived by a Cartesian demon, that you're not in the matrix, and so on. You can't possibly know those things, so you can't possibly know that you're holding a microphone in your hand. So these sceptical arguments are supposed to show that it isn't actually possible for us to know anything, or virtually anything, of the kinds that we think we know. And the sceptic tries to make his case by presenting us with apparently insuperable obstacles to our possessing or acquiring the knowledge in question. Now, once you see the force of these sceptical arguments, if you see the force of these sceptical arguments, the question then does become rather pressing. One reaction to the sceptical argument is, of course, just surrender, just to say, well, all right, I couldn't possibly know that I'm not in the matrix, so I, so I don't know anything. That's a possible response to scepticism. On the other hand, you might think something rather different. You might think, well, on the face of it, at least, we do know lots of things about the world around us. The sceptic has presented us with these arguments which seem to call into question our ability to know about the world around us. And that's why we ask the very general question, well, how in that case is such knowledge so much as possible, given the various considerations which make it look impossible? So that's how the very general question arises. Though I would add one thing. I've talked about scepticism, but when people talk about how possible questions, it's worth remembering that the grandfather, as it were, of how possible questions in philosophy was Kant. And Kant asks a whole lot of how possible questions in the Critique of Pure Reason, so, for example, he asked questions such as, um, how is mathematical knowledge possible? How is pure natural science possible? How is uh, metaphysics possible? Now, when Kant asks these questions, what he's really driven by isn't so much epistemological scepticism of the sort that I've just described, but he's driven or motivated by a somewhat different consideration. So Kant's basic thought is this. He thinks that the kinds of knowledge that I've just listed, metaphysical knowledge, mathematical knowledge, and some scientific knowledge, in Kant's terms, these are forms of what he calls synthetic a priori knowledge. Now, there's a bit of terminology there which I should explain. So a priori knowledge, for Kant, is knowledge that's absolutely independent of experience, knowledge that's not derived from experience. That's a priori knowledge. Then there's a contrast he draws between analytic and synthetic knowledge. So analytic knowledge is knowledge that arises simply through the analysis of concepts. And synthetic knowledge is knowledge that does not so arise. So, for example, my knowledge that all bachelors are unmarried men is an example of analytic knowledge. I can know it to be true that all bachelors are unmarried men just by analysing the concepts. If I were to say all bachelors are depressed, that's not a piece of analytic knowledge. I can't know that to be true by analysing the concepts in question. So Kant's starting point was that just to focus on one example, that mathematical knowledge is, in his terms, synthetic a priori. So, for example, if I say that the internal angles of a triangle are equal to two right angles, Kant thought that I can know that to be true a priori, other than on the basis of experience, but it's not an analytic truth. I can't know it to be true just by analysing the concepts. 
Kant thought that the existence of synthetic a priori knowledge was both indubitable in a certain sense, but also deeply mysterious. I mean, he thought that to question whether there is synthetic a priori knowledge would in effect be to question whether there is such a thing as mathematics or natural science or metaphysics. And Kant didn't think that uh, it was wise to question those things. But nevertheless, he thought that the existence of these forms of knowledge was deeply puzzling. And the puzzle for Kant, I think, was that he couldn't see, or at least he thought that on the face of it, it was hard to see where synthetic a priori knowledge came from. This is what I refer to somewhere as the problem of sources. So Kant's thought is, we have synthetic a priori knowledge. It doesn't come from experience because it's a priori. It doesn't come from conceptual analysis because it's synthetic. Well, where does it come from in that case? And he gives expression to that by asking the question, how is synthetic a priori knowledge so much as possible? And he distinguishes between asking whether it's possible and asking how it's possible. And so he thought, well, if you want to show that it's possible, you simply need to draw attention to the existence of, for example, mathematics. If you're satisfied that mathematics exists and that mathematical knowledge is synthetic a priori, then you ought to be satisfied that some of our knowledge is indeed synthetic a priori. But that leaves open the further question, how is it possible for us to have this kind of knowledge? Now, that's a particular route to the problem of uh, synthetic a priori knowledge that isn't based on some sort of generalized skepticism about the external world. But nevertheless, you still have a debate that's recognizably of the how possible form. So just to recap, to make sure I've, I've got this straight. So it seems like you've mentioned two ways, two different ways, at least, in which these how possible questions could arise. And in one of those cases, the knowledge of the external world, it's not like the mystery is in where we would get that from. I mean, we'd get it from experience, presumably. Mm -hmm. So there's clearly a source for our, yeah. our knowledge of the external world. The problem looks like it's a problem with the source. So, as you've said, we can raise these kind of sceptical worries. Well, if I can't know that I'm not in the matrix, then I can't know that what I think I'm seeing is really there. And so that's one way that I would start asking, well, in that case, how is it possible for me to know anything at all? And then there's a different kind of problem, which you've referred to as the problem of sources, where the existence of the knowledge isn't a puzzle, or at least the existence of the knowledge isn't a question. We know that we can do maths. The question is, where do we get that from? If, if we're going to say that this is a kind of knowledge that doesn't come from experience, well, in that case, where does it come from? What do we have other than experience to get us that kind of knowledge? So I guess the next question that I'm wondering about is, well, how does one begin to respond mm. to these obstacles? And so it seems like one way one might respond to the obstacle in the case of the external world is to say something like, so one might think in the case of the external world, if it's true that I know things about the external world, it can't be the case that I need to know that I'm not in the matrix. Because I don't know that I'm not in the matrix, and yet I do know things about the external world. So there must be something wrong with the condition that you've put on my knowledge. Is that a reasonable kind of response to that sort of worry? Yes, I think that's a very helpful way of looking at it. So just to go back to the beginning of what you said, I think it is right to distinguish between two different sorts of problems that might lead one to ask a how possible question. One problem is, is the absence of any obvious source of a certain kind of knowledge. So if you're thinking about geometrical knowledge, 
the problem there is to identify where we could possibly get such knowledge from, given that it's synthetic a priori. And Kant addresses that problem by identifying a source of synthetic a priori geometrical knowledge. So we don't really need to go into this, but Kant draws attention to the fact that geometrical proof is diagrammatic. So diagrams play an absolutely crucial role in the acquisition of geometrical knowledge. And Kant has a technical term for this. He calls it construction in pure intuition. So there he's identified where we get geometrical knowledge from. But of course, that's not the end of the story. Kant draws attention to the fact that when you use diagrams in geometrical proofs, what you have in front of you on the piece of paper, in, a, in for example, Euclid's proofs, is always a single figure, a single diagram. So you construct or draw a particular triangle, carry out operations on it, and then apparently arrive at knowledge of propositions that are true of all triangles. And then the problem for Kant is, well, how is that possible? How is it possible to arrive at such general or universal knowledge just on the basis of drawing individual diagrams? So there you have a kind of two-stage process. There's, first of all, the identification of a source of geometrical knowledge, but then the recognition that what appears to be the source of geometrical knowledge doesn't seem to be particularly well-equipped to deliver the kind of very general knowledge that we get in geometry, and then Kant has a solution to that. In the other case, the second case that you distinguish, the external world's case, of course there, as you say, the problem isn't that we're mystified about where we could possibly get knowledge of the external world from. Uh, I mean, a standard answer is, well, we get it from the senses, and there are other sources too, but let's just take the senses. So there the worry isn't we don't know what the source is. The worry there is that the sceptic gives us arguments which are supposed to make it difficult for the senses, to show that it's difficult for the senses to give us knowledge of the world around us. Now, usually these uh, sceptical arguments take the form of certain requirements which the sceptic says can't be fulfilled. So to go back to the matrix case, the sceptic says, in order for the senses to give us any knowledge of the world around us, we first have to know that we're not in the matrix. So that's a requirement. And then the sceptic says, but of course you couldn't possibly know that you're not in the matrix. So there you have an insuperable obstacle to our acquiring knowledge of the world by means of the senses. Now faced with an argument of that form, I think there are basically two strategies for dealing with it. One strategy is to dispute the requirement, to argue that, as you suggested, that uh, this isn't a genuine requirement on our having this kind of knowledge. So the fact that it's a requirement that couldn't be fulfilled doesn't show that we don't have knowledge of the world around us because it's not a genuine requirement. So that strategy you might think of as a strategy of, as it were, dissipating the obstacle. So the obstacle is this unfulfillable requirement, and the response to that is not to try and fulfill the requirement, but to show that it's not a genuine requirement. That's one approach. A different approach, much more ambitious approach, would be to say, well, actually it is possible to know that we aren't in these sceptical scenarios. It is possible to know, for example, that I'm not dreaming. So that's the strategy of saying, well, all right, maybe these are requirements, but they're requirements that we can fulfill or requirements that we can satisfy. So two quite different approaches. So if you think about um, philosophers such as G.E. Moore, there's a way of reading someone like Moore on which he is suggesting that we can know that we aren't in these sceptical scenarios. So I think it is helpful to distinguish between these two broad strategies for dealing with sceptical scenarios. And the difficult case, and this is, I suppose, the traditional philosophical predicament, the difficult case is when you find the requirement that the sceptic puts forward compelling. 
You continue to find it compelling despite all philosophers' attempts to dissipate it. And you also find it compelling that the requirement is one that couldn't possibly be fulfilled. And that's scepticism. That's where you end up seeing the full force of a skeptic's arguments. And that's what motivates how possible questions in epistemology, and it's what needs to be addressed by how possible questions if we're to have a satisfactory answer to them. So you've mentioned two strategies so far. One strategy where you sort of grant the skeptic her question, where you say, okay, and I'm going to try to answer this now. You know, this is a legitimate requirement on uh, what it takes for something to be knowledge, and I'm going to try to show that my knowledge fulfills this requirement. And then the other approach that you've talked about is denying that that's a requirement. Which of those two approaches do you think is more promising? How would you answer the skeptic if you had to? Or do you think there's a third option? Well, I think that the more promising approach is the uh, dissipationist approach of denying or questioning the skeptic's requirement. Uh, The thing about these skeptical requirements is that they are actually specifically designed to be unfulfillable. If you understand the requirements in the way that the skeptic understands them, then you couldn't possibly fulfill them. So I think that the only way with the skeptic is to show that these aren't genuine requirements. And that's a tricky business, because, of course, the sceptic doesn't pluck these requirements out of thin air. Uh, So you have philosophers like Barry Stroud, for example, who've uh, written a great deal on the source of these sceptical requirements, on the non-arbitrariness of these requirements. I mean, scepticism just wouldn't be interesting to philosophers, or indeed to anybody else, if these requirements had no force at all. So it's a matter of recognizing these requirements for what they are, recognizing that they do have at least some force, but nevertheless trying to make it plausible that they're not genuine requirements, at least if they're understood in the way that the skeptic understands them. That seems to me to be the best bet. Maybe it would be kind of like, you know, somebody gives me a a supposed proof that one plus one equals one, and then I would try to show that it wasn't really a proper proof. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How would that go exactly in um, either of the cases you've talked about? the question about how mathematical knowledge is possible Mm -hmm. or the question about how knowledge of the external world Mm -hmm. is possible? Well, so in the external world case, what the skeptic says is, look, here are various possibilities which you need to be able to eliminate in order for you to claim the knowledge that you claim. So I think that the first thing we need to do is to be very clear in our understanding of these requirements. So the skeptic says that in order for you to know the things that you think you know, you need to know independently of those things that you're not dreaming, for example, or that you're not in the matrix. And it's very important that the word independently is there. So I think the reply needs to be to say, well, you don't need to know independently that you're not dreaming in order to know the things that you think that you know. Right? So, of course, if I know that there's a hand in front of me, then I can infer that I'm not a handless brain in a vat, for example. And the skeptic says, ah, well, but that's question-begging because in order for you to know that there's a hand in front of you, you've already got to know independently that you're not a handless brain in a vat. So I think there are are deep questions about epistemic priority here, what you need to know before you can know anything else. And I think the deepest and most satisfying responses to skepticism are responses that challenge the skeptic's conception of the relations of priority here. In all philosophical arguments, in all philosophical discussions, there's always a question about where do you start from? What's the starting point? What are you entitled to assume to begin with? And I think that what makes skepticism rather compelling is a certain conception of what the appropriate relations of epistemic priority are. And given that conception, the skeptic, it seems to me, is going to win. (laughs) So that's where you really need to resist. So my 
one way of framing this discussion with the skeptic be something like this you know the skeptic says well you claim to know that there's a hand in front of you but it's possible for all you know mm-hmm. that you're a brain in a vat mm-hmm. and in that case you wouldn't know mm-hmm. that there was a hand in front of you so you need to know that you're not in a brain in a vat mm-hmm. in order to know there's a hand mm-hmm. in front of you and the reply is something like sure it's possible that i'm a brain in a vat and it's possible that i'm not brain in a vat and in the case where i'm not a brain in a vat i do know yeah. that there's a hand in yeah. front of me and that's where this question of priority that yeah. you've yeah. that you've yeah. talked about comes in so you mentioned g Moore, and his response mm-hmm. seems mm-hmm. to have been roughly this yes. right yes there's a hand in front of me i know it's there i don't see why i even need to engage your crazy scenario of brains in vats i take the priority to go a different way yeah. You need to show me that I exactly. have reason exactly. to worry in ways exactly. that I'm not worried. Exactly. I think that's absolutely right. And this is why I think Moore is a particularly deep and interesting thinker on these topics. Because what Moore is really doing is to say, well, you, the skeptic, want to run your arguments in a particular direction. In effect, the skeptic is arguing from ignorance to ignorance. The skeptic says, you don't know that you're not in one of my scenarios, so you don't know anything else. And Moore says, well, I'm going to run the argument the other way around. I'm going to argue from knowledge to knowledge. I know that here's a hand, so I know that I'm not a handless brain in a vat. And Moore's challenge to the skeptic is to say, well, you tell me why why I have to run the argument your way rather than running the the argument my way. I mean, my way seems to be just as good as your way. Now, people who are sympathetic to skepticism are going to say to Moore, oh, but look, you're begging the question if you run the argument your way because you're assuming the very thing that's at issue. Now, then you get into a very interesting discussion about what it is to beg the question But essentially what Moore will say is that, well, I don't see why my way of running the argument is begging the question unless one has a certain conception of the relations of epistemic priority, which you, the skeptic, have, but I don't see why we should accept that conception. So I think that the questions in this area are very deep and very difficult, and a label for these questions would be they're really questions about what's prior to what, questions about the relations of epistemic priority. And I think they're the questions that ultimately hold the key to scepticism. And so just to clarify, when you say begging the question, that means something like taking what should be the conclusion of the argument right. yeah. and assuming it yeah. as one of the yeah. premises. And I guess in those terms, Moore is going to say that he denies that I know that here is a hand mm-hmm. is the conclusion of the yeah. argument, yeah. that he has to get to it yes. as opposed to yes. come from it. Yes, that would be one way of putting it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So we've talked about Immanuel Kant's approach to questions like, how is mathematical knowledge possible? But it seems he also weighed in on the question, how is knowledge of the external world possible? So what was the approach that he took to that question? Well, Kant is seen by many interpreters as having responded to external world skepticism by means of something called a transcendental argument. So this is supposed to be Kant's response to the how possible question. And in the Critique of Pure Reason, there's a very famous little section called Refutation of Idealism, in which Kant develops what appears to be a transcendental response to skepticism. So perhaps it's worth just saying something about what a transcendental argument is. The basic idea of a transcendental argument is something along the following lines. You start off with the assumption that we have a certain kind of experience and then try to identify what's necessary for us to have that experience. So the argument is concerned with identifying necessary conditions for the possibility of experience. So in the refutation of idealism, the starting point is that we have something called inner experience. 
Now, by inner experience, Kant simply means something like knowledge of your own inner states and their temporal order. So Kant takes it that even the external world skeptic is going to agree that we have at least inner experience. The thing that the skeptic is questioning is whether we have what Kant calls outer experience, that's to say, knowledge of mind-independent spatial objects. So what Kant does in reply to the skeptic in the refutation of idealism is to argue in the following way. You, the skeptic, and I both agree that we have inner experience. Now, I'm going to show you that in order for us to have inner experience, we have to have outer experience. Outer experience is a necessary condition for inner experience. Therefore, we do have outer experience. That's to say, knowledge of the external world. So the strategy is to show that the thing whose existence the skeptic is questioning, namely knowledge, is a necessary condition for something which the, the reality of which the skeptic himself accepts, namely inner experience. That's the transcendental strategy, a transcendental response to skepticism. Now, one question that's raised by this response, I think, is something like this. Does a response of that sort really give us an answer to a how-possible question? And I suggest that it doesn't really answer the how-possible question for the following reason. The skeptic that I'm envisaging is someone who's asking, how is outer experience so much as possible? How is it possible for us to have knowledge of external objects? And as I said earlier, the skeptic asks that question because he thinks there are various requirements on our having knowledge of external objects which can't be fulfilled. That's why he asks his question. So there are obstacles, in other words. There are obstacles to outer experience. Now Kant's reply to the skeptic is to say, well, there must be outer experience in order for there to be inner experience. So is that a satisfying response? Well, it's satisfying in the sense that if your question is, do we have outer experience, then you have an answer to that. We do. We must do in order for us to have inner experience. But the initial question was, how is it possible for us to have outer experience? So merely having this very abstract transcendental assurance that we do have outer experience does not in itself explain how it's possible for us to have outer experience. Now, of course, if we do have outer experience, then it follows that it's possible for us to have outer experience. That certainly follows. But the question was not whether it's possible. The question was, how is it possible? And answering the question, how is it possible, has got to be a matter of actually dismantling the, the obstacles that the skeptic has put in place. Now, if Kant is right that we do have outer experience, it certainly follows that those sceptical obstacles can't be genuine. But the question still remains, what specifically are we going to do about these obstacles? So we're back to the discussion we had earlier about whether, you know, are these obstacles requirements that can be fulfilled or are they uh, not genuine requirements or what do we want to say? So a lot of the, the anti-sceptical work remains to be done even if you have this very general assurance that um, outer experience is necessary. And it, it, indeed, there's a kind of paradox lurking here. Kant is telling us that outer experience is necessary for inner experience, and the skeptic is telling us that outer experience isn't possible. Right? So now we have something is both necessary and yet impossible. So something has got to give here. Those claims can't both be true. And, of course, the problem that Kant faces is fairly straightforward. The skeptic is going to say, well, your arguments for saying that this kind of experience or knowledge is necessary are much less uh, secure and much less obviously correct than my arguments for saying that it isn't possible. Because when you make claims about 
necessary conditions for the possibility of inner experience. Claims of that sort are very hard to assess, very hard to establish. And a skeptic might think, well, I don't really see why I should believe these claims about what's necessary for inner experience. So I think the general point is this. If Kant's arguments are successful, then they give us an assurance that knowledge is possible. They give us an assurance that the skeptic's obstacles can be overcome. But they don't explain specifically and in detail how these obstacles can be overcome. And that challenge still remains. And you might say the place where we started, when we started talking about how possible questions, we wanted specifically to distinguish them from whether possible questions. Absolutely, yes. We didn't start down this track because we really thought it was possible that we don't have knowledge of the external world at all. That wasn't our reasoning. Our problem was we're pretty sure that we do, but given these considerations, we can't see how it comes about. So in a sense, it seems like what you're saying is Kant gets us no further than we were when we started and in a way on slightly less firm ground Mm, mm. because we now have this somewhat dubious argument from inner experience to outer experience. That's right. And and, and I I have to say that in a way, I mean, my presentation is a little bit unfair to Kant. I mean, what's true is that Kant was the person who brought how possible questions to prominence in philosophy and Kant was also the inventor of transcendental arguments. And it's natural to suppose that his transcendental arguments were designed or intended by Kant to be an answer to his own how possible questions. Well, I doubt that, actually. I don't think that was the role of his transcendental arguments. And I think the mistake is really on the part of commentators on Kant who take it that he's giving an answer to his how possible questions by means of transcendental arguments. But I think they play a quite different role in his philosophy. And indeed, Kant has transcendental arguments that claim to establish things that we don't necessarily all agree on at the beginning to do with our moral lives, Absolutely, the existence of God, yes, and these yes, kinds of yes, issues. Yes, quite so, quite so. I think it's also worth pointing out that when one says that a transcendental argument spells out necessary conditions for the possibility of experience, a great deal depends on how much is built into the notion of experience. Now, when Kant talks about experience, sometimes he talks about inner experience, that's this very thin kind of experience that just consists in knowledge of your own mental life. But by and large, when Kant talks about experience, he means empirical knowledge of mind-independent objects. So when he starts off with there is experience or we have experience, he's starting off with we do have knowledge of mind-independent objects. And he's concerned to identify necessary conditions for our having that kind of knowledge. So, for example, he thinks that for us to have that kind of knowledge, there are specific concepts that we have to use in our thinking, namely what Kant calls categories. So from that perspective, scepticism about the external world is simply not an issue at all. Kant, in in that context, isn't trying to uh, show that we have knowledge, nor is he trying to explain how such knowledge is possible, given the skeptic's obstacles. Rather, what you have are what are sometimes called regressive arguments, arguments that start off from the assumption that we are indeed capable of a certain rather rich and demanding cognitive achievement, and then you work backwards to try and figure out what the necessary conditions are for our being able to achieve the thing in question. Kasim Kassam, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure. To listen to future episodes of Elucidations, you may consult our website at philosophy.uchicago.edu slash podcasts.